Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The field of Civil War studies is filled with debate. If you attend a professional historian's conference, you can watch panels of PhDs exchange volleys of jargon over issues like the periodization of 19th century history. If you go online, you can find lost causers spouting evidence-free claims about mythical armies of black Confederates. One of the few experts in the field who not only understands both languages, but believes in the importance of addressing both audiences is the legendary Gary W. Gallagher, Professor Emeritus at the University of Virginia. We'll discuss his new book, The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, just down the street, a mile or two from East Carolina University, where I would normally spend my days, but it's October of 2020. We are still sheltering from the pandemic, and thus I'm here speaking not for anyone else in the house, I guess that would just be Emily, uh, just for myself, and not for anyone at East Carolina University, not representing anyone, and likewise my guest speaks only for himself as always. Well, in the past week, uh, there has been so much news that everyone is suffering a sensory overload, but while the political news has come thick and fast, there is a bit of Civil War news, or Lincoln news, which, appropriate for the season, was completely fake news, as you might imagine. Uh, It was the story of a new photograph of Abraham Lincoln, uh, supposedly taken of, actually, the body of Lincoln on his deathbed. 
this was announced with some fanfare online, and apparently there was a TV show about it. I did not watch it. I did see the photograph itself reproduced uh, on the computer screen, and I, I think the likelihood of it being authentic is, is truly zero. Uh, the first thing I noticed immediately was that the person supposed to be Lincoln on his deathbed was wearing a shirt, and Dr. Leal and other physicians immediately cut away the president's clothing when they started uh, examining him. They marveled at his, his powerful physique, even after suffering a clearly fatal wound. So if this was to be a real photograph, somebody had to have crept into the room at the Peterson House or the White House. I'm not sure what story they're, they're giving us about where this was done. Uh, dressed the president without anyone noticing or writing about it afterwards, and then uh, set up the elaborate camera necessary for the time, taking the picture, and then hid it for the next century and a half. Uh, on top of that, the person doesn't look all that much like Lincoln, so I'm not buying it, but we shall see. Here, uh, another thing I'm not buying uh, is futures in East Carolina University football. The team lost its second game of the year last Saturday, and uh, it it doesn't look like they may win any games at all this year. It's not going well, so we're not going to talk about that tonight at all. Here on campus, we have finished block one. There was no live show last week. Final exams got graded. We are doing this emergency block system for one semester only, and two courses were, and I was able to completely teach two courses in the first seven and a half week block, which is the same pace as teaching four courses over a whole semester, and a four course load is a full load with no research or service responsibility, but of course, I'm still doing research, I'm still talking to you right here doing Civil War talk radio and so on. It was uh, it was a, a difficult semester in terms of time demands, and I'm happy that to have learned uh, that they are definitely not going to repeat this experiment in the spring. Although my thought is, if it seems like a good idea to compress a whole semester into half the amount of time just by doing it twice as often, we could do that in other forms, like have the NFL... Uh, avoid all the travel risk of, of COVID by playing two games for each team every Sunday and play two on Saturday as well. And that way they could get four games in each weekend. That would uh, pack things in. Uh, or let's take it further here at ECU. Uh, why, if we can teach twice as much, if students theoretically learn twice as much from two mind-numbing lectures in a day as they do from one, why not go all out. Let's do seven lectures in a day, one every hour, and get the whole course done in one week. There won't be time to write a term paper or to do any reading or studying or absorb anything, but you'd get the contact hours in. So that's my proposal to the chancellors. We do one week long courses for three credit hours. The I, I'm guessing uh, my guest tonight as an academic listening to this is equally horrified Certainly, when I started teaching, te give, giving an hour or an hour and a quarter lecture was a draining experience. It took you know, days of preparation, and then actually performing it, doing it, plus 
answering on your feet uh, questions that you get if things are going well. When it would be over, I would be pretty much useless for the rest of the day, especially a day with two lectures, which sometimes happened. Uh, Now, 15 years in, I can give a lecture and go about my business. I've I've done it enough times. But there's still that moment of warm-up ahead of time when the adrenaline starts to flow. There's still a cool-down afterward as you think, did that go all right? What can I do better next time? How am I going to fix this? Uh, It's still... uh, it, it, it's a big deal. It's like a surgeon's operating or uh, operation or a lawyer's courtroom performance. It's just the tip of the iceberg of what people do. And the idea that you could just do a whole bunch of them in one day, like having NFL players play multiple games in a weekend, anyone who knows anything about football knows that would be uh, completely impossible physically as well as mentally. So, uh, So maybe we won't do seven hours in a day, but it's just an idea. Quick look at the remaining schedule, uh, or the advancing schedule coming up next week. H.W. Brands will be with us. His new book is out uh, yesterday. It came out. It's called The Zealot and the Emancipator. It's about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. On the 21st, David Dixon returns to us with a uh, book about August Willick called Radical Warrior, Willick's journey from German revolutionary to Union general. And uh, the 28th, we're still negotiating, but on November 4th, Stephen Barry will be back to the show to talk about uh, projects he works on in the digital realm, CSI Dixie or Private Voices or others you might have come across on the internet. We'll be talking about non-print and digital forms of scholarship in the 21st century. It should be very interesting. You can always find out about these at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney will keep that up to date for us. You can donate to the show there so that I can buy the medicines necessary to keep up with the uh, block schedule here at ECU. And uh, let me say a very heartfelt thank you to all of you who contributed in September to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund in memory of my late colleague at ECU. The money has gone to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund. Initially, $5,000 was needed just to open the fund. That goal has been met. The next goal is $25,000 to start distributing money to students, and we are closing in on that. So thank you all who who helped make that possible. Tonight, we welcome back to the show uh, for the fourth time, thus tying uh, Mark Dunkelman, who was here just two weeks ago, as the record holder for most appearances on Civil War Talk Radio, the legendary, I use that word in the opening, I'll say it again, uh, Gary Gallagher. If if you're listening to the show, you've read something he's written, uh, so I don't need to introduce him in any detail. He was, uh, for a number of years, the John L. Now the third professor in the history of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. He has trained many of the leading lights in the field, written many things himself. It's always a pleasure to have him on the show. Gary, are you there? I am, and delighted to be here. Well, welcome back. It's good good to have you. Um, and happy birthday to you. I understand you are turning another year older this week. Uh, tomorrow, Perryville Day. Yes, I am. Very good. I will not ask how many years, just we'll leave it at that. Uh, but 
congratulations on that. Uh, since you were last on, which was just uh, a year ago in May, at that time we talked about the book you co-wrote with Matthew Gallman, Lens of War. And I just want to let you know, if, if you hadn't heard it, that uh, Matt was on the show to talk about that book in the last few months at your suggestion, and it was a great uh, a great discussion. So thank you for suggesting that. And Matt had a good time. He told me he had a very good time with your talk. Well, that's good to hear. So this book, uh, The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis, um, it's not a monograph in the traditional sense. Tell us, what, what's the format of this book? It's not a monograph. It is a, it's a series of 1,000-word essays that I've written for Civil War Times, for every issue of Civil War Times since, I think, April of 2009. I undertook these at the invitation of Dana Shoke, who was new to the editorship of the magazine, and asked me if I would like to write something for every issue, and I said yes. He said I could talk about anything I wanted to talk about. My only constraint was it couldn't be more than a thousand words. And so I accepted his invitation, and here we are in 2020, and there, the book has 71 of these essays, as well as a couple that I did for the Civil War Monitor. I didn't write these with the intention of turning them into a book, but Joan Waugh, over a period of a couple of months, while I was out on the west coast at the Huntington Library, persuaded me to do this, and Mike Parrish at LSU Press with his series was very enthusiastic, and so I did it. I uh, grouped them in, in six groupings. I wrote a long introduction. I added annotation to them. They weren't annotated for Civil War Times, of course, and came up with this book. Well, the the structure of these multiple short essays, I will say I intended this week to look through it, read a couple out of each chapter, and figure that would give us enough to talk about. But they are like like M and M's, uh, whatever your favorite kind is. I like the dark chocolate peanut covered ones. And uh, you read one, then you read the next one, then you read the next one, then you flip through and start reading another. And I ended up reading all of them. Uh, it was really an interesting look. I'm flattered. Now, a thousand words is not very long. An undergraduate blanches at the thought, but it's really not long at all. And you know, was it? Benjamin Franklin or someone who said I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. Uh, it, <laughs> right. It, right. It, it's hard to write short. Did you find this a challenge to stay under I, a thousand I did words? Find it a, the challenge is always cutting it down. The challenge, not for a single one of those essays, was the challenge trying to find another paragraph to get it up to a thousand words. The challenge was always cutting it and cutting it to get it down to a thousand words. Absolutely, uh, that was the hardest thing about these. But you had free reign for topics. You could choose anything you wanted. Absolutely free reign. I went into it with the idea of trying to put the academic and the lay audiences of the Civil War in conversation with one another in a number of ways, which is something I've tried to do throughout my career and this seemed to be a perfect place to do it. It's, a, it's the oldest of the popular magazines on the Civil War and has consistently had a good uh, readership, a large readership. 
And it allowed me to talk about popular culture, to talk about, I've been a bibliophile my whole life. Two of the six sections are devoted to books. One, to historians, I think, have been uh, forgotten to a degree that isn't uh, fair to them. And then another to books written by people. Uh, written by participants during the war. So there's that kind of thing in it. Uh, there, uh, Let me talk about controversies, both in the academic world and in the non-academic world. I really could do, literally could do anything I wanted to do. Dana just, he, he never said, no, you can't do that. Uh, it, it, anything I proposed, he accepted. Well, I definitely want to ask you about some of the controversies you addressed, but let, let me start with the historian's question. Uh, we have a minute before our first break. Let me ask you to just throw out uh, some of the names of these historians that you wrote about that that we just don't read so much anymore. That at one time everybody we don't read, read them. Uh, Alan Nevins, David Potter, Bruce Catton, Douglas Southall Freeman, Bell Wiley, Ella Lawn. I mean, there are there are a number of them that I that I talked about who were giants in their own time. Most of them, but as is almost always the case. People move on from them, and subsequent generations really aren't even familiar with them. It's, it would have been hard to believe in 1970 to say that Alan Nevins would be seldom read and little known in 35 years, but I think that's the case. That that one really struck me. I've got a, the one of the volumes of The War for the Union at my bedside, and I read a page or two now and then because I have a grad school guilt that I really do need to finish all eight volumes of this. Uh, <laughs> right. And, and and haven't done so. I've read most of it, but not all of it. And yet, right. as you say, nobody talks about Alan Nevins anymore. Nobody. Uh, no, nobody. Nope. Let's, well, we'll do, and, let's and take a short be break. be a larger figure than he was. No, he, he was huge. I want to ask you what happened to some of these people, but we're going to take a short break first. We'll come right back, talk more with our guest, Gary Gallagher, author of The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gary Gallagher, author of The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. We were talking at the end of the first segment about historians who aren't read as much as they used to be. And uh, some of the names you mentioned, Gary, included you know, Bruce Catton, Douglas Southall Freeman, David Potter. These were all great stylists. Their, their writing is just you know, absorbing when you get into it. I, you could put Shelby Foote in that class, I suppose, as well. I, um, I wrote a, one of the essays in this uh, book is on Shelby Foote, too. Yes. So He's another of the historians. Have we just lost a taste for narrative, or do we discount the importance of style now? What happened to these guys? Well, I think in on the academic side of things, we've we've almost always discounted the element of style. I recently reread Catton. I hadn't I read his Army of the Potomac trilogy um, mm-hmm. earlier this summer. Mr. Lincoln's Army Glory Road and the Stillness in Appomattox, and. I hadn't read those for probably 35 years, wasn't sure what I was going to find when I went back, and I was absolutely just kind of blown away by how good he is. Catton, not only does he write exceedingly well, but he his assessments of individuals and situations is quite remarkably on point for something that was written 70 years ago now, uh, long before a lot of the literature that we can draw on now existed. Catton was just a very good and perceptive historian who could really write. (laughs) When I read his stuff, I find if I start open a book and start reading it, my first thought is, seriously, this is is just like over-the-top style. I can't deal with this. And then I get (laughs) used to it, and then it's like, I can't get enough of it. Then I can't stop. But uh, no, exactly, and it's certainly something I could never get away with. For example, I just I often no. found myself saying he's sitting there and deciding to phrase this in this manner. I couldn't get away with that. He gets away with it. He, he does. He is inimitable. Now you mentioned in the book that you often tackled controversial topics, and you. Uh, often got letters complaining about your writing uh, in balanced measure from from uh, different dimensions. Which essay got you the most flack? I think the essay I wrote about Shelby's foot got a lot of flack because I was critical of foot in some ways. Mm-hmm. And they got flack from different directions. Uh, I wrote about the, I've written about the relative importance of the different theaters, including the Trans Mississippi, including the Trans Hundredth Meridian uh, Western Theater, and that got a lot of pushback. People often actually attribute things to me that I don't say, but they mm-hmm. and use me as a sort of a straw figure, and then and then make their case. And I think that's happened as much with this Western Eastern stuff as with anything else. 
Well, you you have argued that the war was won in the East. That's one of your your essay titles here, and in that yeah. uh, you're challenging more you know scholarship uh, from people like uh, you know Connolly, uh, Hathaway, and Jones, uh, others. Right who have focused on the Western theater. And I, I admit a, a sympathy with that view that the, the Western theater really was in many ways decisive. <laughs> yes, I think uh, you would. I'd be surprised if you didn't. Uh, it, it, and I, and I've had never argued the Western theater isn't really important, not least because it sent Ulysses S. Grant into the position of general in chief and pulled his principal lieutenants up with him and put them in place to win the war militarily. But it's but I think other factors um, counterbalance that. I think the thing I've gotten the most pushback over is my argument that that the the far west, the the trans hundredth meridian west, simply mm-hmm. didn't figure prominently in the planning, in the allocation of resources on either side. It simply wasn't important in terms of affecting how the war went. I've never said no one should write about it. I've never said it isn't interesting. That's I grew up in that part of the world. It's, it's my part of the world. But in terms of influencing the the direction that the war took, it, it really was it was beside the point. And I, I we can't have a good debate about that because I don't disagree. Uh, I, I've always been struck by you know, how remote it was, and that the argument that it was somehow more central and we should pay more attention just seems to me like looking for an argument. On the other hand, I, I thought Megan Kate Nelson's new book on the war in the West was enlightening and it, it, you know, extremely, uh, I'm not going to say, it, it made, made it understandable and, and showed how it did have importance to the people who were there. But well, it didn't of, try to of make course, the anyone case. who argued against, of course, it was important to the people who were there, and they right. tended to view their world from where they were, and so to them, it seemed more important than it was. I think it's important to kind of follow the money to see what was important in Richmond and Washington, and the money didn't flow to the Trans Hundredth Meridian West. They didn't deploy troops there. They pulled troops out of there. They, I mean, it's just it it is it's on the far periphery of of a war to see whether the Republic will survive or not. Now, one of the other things you argue, and in, in, this is in your guise as, as pushing back against some recent scholarship, uh, the argument to the importance of the guerrilla war. Some scholars have said mm-hmm. it really, really was the main war. If you look at the number of people actually affected in their homes, right. uh, on their farms, the guerrilla struggle touched more Americans than the big battles did, uh, but you're you're not you're not seeing it that way. I'm not at all persuaded by that. I mean, it certainly touched a lot of people. The number of guerrillas was relatively very small compared to. I mean, there were more than three million men who put on uniforms during the war, and the number of guerrillas was a very very small percentage of that. Their operations created a great deal of misery inflicted a great deal of hardship and engendered tremendous bitterness in many places. But I would say that what the Army of the Potomac and what the Army of Northern Virginia did were far more important in affecting a large number of people because it was those armies and the big armies of the West that determined which side would win, and that in turn decided whether there would be slavery going forward, which in turn 
affected every single person who lived in the Confederate States. So it all depends on how you frame it. Uh, but I think that it is a distortion to try, and I'm not saying guerrilla war isn't important and we shouldn't do a lot of work on it, but to, to argue that it's really the engine driving things, I think, is an exaggeration. So it, it, looking at the issues we just talked about, the importance of guerrillas, the importance of the far west, importance of the western theater, uh, listener might say, oh, well, he is just an old stick in the mud. He's arguing all these traditional positions. But you get just as much flack from people who object. Uh, you already cited the Shelby Foote essay. Uh, people who object to your views uh, about the importance of slavery in the war or, or the absence of black Confederates. Uh, you're just another of them liberal communist professors. I, that's a plume they actually use, and I and I also am adamantly against the idea that Gettysburg was all that important. I don't think the fall of Vicksburg was nearly as important as the fall of New Orleans. If you're talking about the Mississippi River as a Confederate river, the fall of New Orleans ends the period during which that was a Confederate river. If you don't control New Orleans, you don't control the Mississippi River, and Vicksburg sort of seals that process, but it's New Orleans that's the decisive moment in that process, in my view, much more than Vicksburg or even Vicksburg and Port Hudson in tandem. Vicksburg's far more important than Gettysburg within the context of the Civil War, not least because it helped propel Grant upward. Now, you've pointed out, you know, both tonight and elsewhere, that Gettysburg was not seen at the time by people south or north as a turning point. It was it was another big battle. It was critical, but there would be more. There had been some before. There'd be more to come. Only in retrospect do we right. see it that way. But in one essay, you, you make a case for the seven days as an actual turning point. Uh, I, I'm curious to hear you uh, push that any further. Well, I'll push that a very long way. I think the seven days far more important than Gettysburg, for example. If we're talking about campaigns that affected the larger trajectory of the war, the war was almost over in May of 1862. The United States had... A series, an unbroken series of successes in the West. They captured Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans, 100,000 United States soldiers in Corinth, Mississippi. Most of Tennessee was already gone. It, it's just, it's a symphony of abject failure for the Confederacy in the West. And the largest army of the Republic was five miles from Richmond. The war was almost over. Joseph Eggleston Johnson was in command, so you know he's going to retreat. You know that he is going to probably bungle things there. And morale in the Confederacy was at one of its lowest points of the war. And then a shell fragment knocked Johnston out of his saddle at Seven Pines. Lee took over, pushed McClellan away from Richmond. McClellan shouldn't have retreated, but he did. In the Seven Days Battles, and the whole world changed. Uh, number one, it put Lee in command, which in effect lengthened the war for three years, I think. In, I mean, you can make that argument very seriously. But on the United States side, it persuaded many people in Congress and Abraham Lincoln that the time had come to quit pretending you could win a war with gloves on. And both Congress with the Second Confiscation Act, which came to, uh, just a couple of weeks after the Seven Days, in which Charles Sumner tied directly to McClellan's retreat. That put slavery on the table. Lincoln told his cabinet on July 22nd he was going to issue a proclamation of emancipation. So there you have a sea change 
on the union side, and they have now upped the stakes in the war so that the entire social fabric of the Confederacy is on the table, and that changed everything as well. Antietam isn't the key battle for the Emancipation Proclamation. That's the occasion to issue it, but the decision comes in the wake of the seven days. The the rise of, of Lee that you mention and you talk about in your book uh, in several essays brings up a, a question from a listener, and we don't norm- normally do a lot of listener questions, but this also ties in with your, your willingness to engage with public audiences as well as scholarly ones and mm-hmm. recognize them. So uh, and there are many, many well-informed listeners to this show, as you can imagine. So let me read you this question and see what you think. Uh, the writer says, Dr. Gallagher has long emphasized that the Civil War was not a war of North versus South, but a conflict between two nation states. In a book he is familiar with, uh, so wonderfully written by Dr. Cynthia Nicoletti, Secession on Trial, and she'll be on the show in February. Uh, The author reminds us that in 1861, the question of secession had not been legally settled. Texas v. White would come four years after Appomattox. Uh, Furthermore, in many ways, the United States government treated the Confederacy as a legitimate nation. Some examples are given. Um, skipping ahead, in our highly charged political environment of 2020, we see Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and many others referred to as traitors, even by famous historical scholars. Since secession was seen as legally possible before December 1860, and Lee, Davis, and others had resigned their positions within the U.S. government, were they really traitors in a legal sense? Can you commit treason against a nation you do not belong to? Do you have a thought about that? Well, I mean, that's something that people argue endlessly. And my, my, I was, a, Alan Nolan was a dear friend of mine. Alan mm-hmm. wrote a book called Lee Considered, and he, he saw Lee as a traitor. It all depends on whether you, you accept, I mean, it takes certain assumptions. And one of the assumptions is that secession was unconstitutional. That's something that you have to accept if you're going to, definitively label people traitors, I think. And as Cynthia, Cynthia was one of my students. She's a, she's mm-hmm. a brilliant historian, teaches at the UVA Law School. Uh, but her, her book makes very clear how contingent this notion of, of constitutionality or not of secession was. And she, much of that of her book, which won a couple of prizes, is devoted to the question of whether they would try Jefferson Davis for treason or not, and in the end they didn't, and part of the reason was that they weren't at all sure they could get a conviction of Jefferson Davis for treason, and that would raise, if you didn't, that would raise a lot of problems. Uh, I mean, Lee didn't uh, give up his commission to join the Confederacy. He gave up his commission to, to take over the Virginia state forces. Virginia wasn't in the Confederacy when he... Resigned. So the, the mere fact of his resigning his commission from the United States Army and going back to Virginia, I don't think constitutes treason. Uh, once you're with the Confederacy, I mean, then, then it's just people uh, can argue this persuasively both ways, I think. And they do, endlessly. Yeah, I, I, I'm, the sticking point for me in that question is what do you do then with George Thomas? Is he... Uh, if he's a Virginian who doesn't side with the Confederacy, is he committing treason against his state? Or does everyone just get to make I'm, a free choice at, at some point? Well, I think everyone uh, gets to make a free choice, but I think his family did 
think that he committed treason against his state. His George, poor George Thomas's family, or at least many parts True. of his family, read him out of the family at that at that at that point. But it's also worth noting that many of the Lees didn't. I mean, Lee had cousins who remained loyal to the United States mm-hmm. and thought that he had done absolutely the wrong thing that they were very strong unionists, and he was from a family that had been Federalist. His father had been an ardent nationalist and a tremendous admirer of George Washington. Lee was an admirer of George Washington, and Washington never would have countenanced secession. I don't think there's any doubt about that. That would have been anathema to Washington, who was above all a nationalist. Let me turn a uh, different direction and ask you about which essay got you the most flack. Uh, which, which essay was the most fun to write? Oh, wow. I've, I've, I've actually had fun with a lot of them. I've had fun with a lot of the, the ones that deal with sources from the time. I like to go back to the sources and read them and then talk about them. I had fun with a, I wrote one called what if on counterfactuals that, mm-hmm. that I enjoyed um, I, I really, the, the wonderful thing, Jerry, about, about these columns was I really only did things that I was interested in doing. And that was the freedom that I got from Dana. And it's just worked out. There's not a single essay in there that, what, that I, that was burdensome to write because I was interested in everything I was writing about. I loved writing the one on Grant and Sherman. I, the Grant and Sherman partnership fascinates me because I think they were such different individuals in some ways. And I like to imagine them, you know, in a tent together at night and what a conversation might've been like with Sherman talking incessantly and Grant not ever talking at all. And both of them thinking it had been a great evening, probably at the end. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy those kinds of things. Well, the, the, uh, it comes through in the writing. Certainly it's an enjoyable book to read and, and, uh, much like the way we're talking now, just just getting your thoughts about issues, and some of them are contemporary events. You write about the governor of Virginia's uh, proclamation one year uh, regarding uh, Confederate and Virginia yeah. history. <laughs> that, I'm, I'm setting that up for advisors. Our... <laughs> well, let's I'm let's sorry. save that for the next. We'll take a break. I'm going to set that up. I'm going to ask you about that and another recent event that you don't write about, the recent uh, uh, White House Conference on American History. So we'll give you a moment to get your thoughts together. We'll take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with Gary Gallagher, author of The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Gary Gallagher, author of The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. It is a book of essays, brief essays written originally for Civil War Times Magazine, now compiled. And through it, you can get a range of uh, Professor Gallagher's views on many Civil War topics. Uh, Gary, we ended just talking briefly about uh, your comments on uh, the governor of Virginia some years ago expressing uh, his thoughts on, on, I don't know what it was, Virginia History Day or, or something, some annual celebration, which omitted any reference to slavery, and that was certainly controversial. History has been in the news a lot um, recently, and this calls for people to do things like you did, to write publicly and speak uh, from an academic perspective, are is the academic community doing enough to be involved in these debates or or too much to be involved in these debates? What What's going on here? Have you ever seen a time when there was so much public debate about Civil War history? Mm, no, I haven't. And it's... It, and, and history in general, and the 1619 Project is, is certainly has been a catalyst mm-hmm. for a lot of this. I, I don't think there's ever been a time when ideology played such a powerful role in the discussion of history in the public forum mm-hmm. either. I mean, and I mean ideology both on the right side of the spectrum and on the left or progressive side of the spectrum. I mean, it is it's 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 powerful and it's driving a lot of these discussions and the discussions of the past are inextricably linked to concerns of the present. There's nothing new about that. The, (laughs) the progressive, the original progressive historians of the earlier 20th century certainly brought that uh, to the table. And during the Vietnam era, politics and history got very much involved with one another. There's nothing new about that, but I don't think it's ever been present to a degree as striking as it is right now. The given the the trade-offs of the two, on the one hand, uh, you have arguments being made that that have been characterized by uh, the organization of American historians as uh, misguided and dangerous attempts to politicize the teaching and writing of United States history. Uh, you've got 
people taking things to the extremes of uh, you know direct crowd action to destroy monuments. You've so you have negatives certainly in this debate, but you also have a degree of engagement that is is extremely high. Do the benefits outweigh the negatives? Do you think? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. If, I, I mean, in my ideal world, <laughs> it would be. <laughs> Uh, historians discussing with public audiences uh, the past using evidence in a really uh, mm. forthright, honest, but even-handed way, engaging the past that way and not, enga- and not sort of, I mean, the notion of a usable past, again, is a very old notion and one that's always been present. I guess I just favor, the, that's not my favorite way of approaching the past not my that that isn't the the first thing that I would gravitate toward well you mentioned in that when you t- taught classes it was uh, you made a point of keeping your personal politics out of your presentations and I think uh, I, I would hope most out. historians and, and oh, that seems to me now, let's be honest on the on the radio here you know most yeah. historians do not do that you know they don't. That's not considered well, uh, an ideal by many people, and they would and they can make a strong argument about why that shouldn't be the ideal. It's just the approach that I prefer for myself. Well, I, I would say if I when I last taught uh, in person a uh, a survey course when I'm teaching modern American history uh, survey to the first year students, I very much try to do just what you said, and and when my grad student reports to me they overheard students arguing whether I was going to vote this way or that way. They couldn't tell my politics. I took that as a, a victory. Uh, and you say I you've tried to do the same you. thing. I say good for you. But if I'm teaching an upper-level Civil War class where these are history majors and they know something, my tendency is to put my cards on the table and say, here's how I, here's where my training and my thinking has, have brought me and these are my views on these controversial issues, and you're welcome to dispute them, and you can get an A if you can you do it with evidence. As long as there's evidence, I don't, you don't have to well, agree no, with me. I have no problem with that, and I have opinions on everything. <laughs> and, and I've always had opinions on everything. I'm not arguing against opinions. I'm, I'm perfectly in favor of informed opinions and genuine debate about Listen. issues. I think there's almost no genuine debate about historical issues now. I think people kind of scream talking points at each other, and they demonize the people who have a different view than they have, and I don't think there's real debate. I'm all in favor of real debate and marshalling evidence to support arguments in a real debate. That's exactly what we should do as historians, Mm -hmm. and whenever we write something, it's out there, and it's fair game for people to critique it. So I'm not certainly not arguing against that. I, that's one of the best parts of, of being a historian. You talk also about the gap not only between ideological uh, views in Civil War history, but also the, the academic versus popular history gap. And you know, listeners know that I, I talk about this a lot as well. Uh, how do we who have academic appointments, what, what can we do to bridge that gap, to, uh, uh, to, to make well, our I, I work more accessible? What, what do we do? 
Okay, one thing we do is write accessibly. That's one thing we do. So mm-hmm. one thing I've never let my graduate students do is fill their dissertations with jargon. Jargon puts a time stamp on a manuscript because the jargon changes. And you can read something mm-hmm. and say, oh, that's so 1970s. Oh, look, this is early 1990s. Uh, when that word was a buzzword and it's long since gone, it sort of uh, has moss on it and is and it's sort of uh, amusing now. So no jargon, write accessibly, but also look for opportunities and forums where you can convey the best of scholarship to a lay audience. And that, in our world, would go from roundtables to trying to make use of historic sites in various ways in your teaching and in your lecturing, National Park Service sites and other ones. There's a whole world out there of people who are very interested in history, eager to get good history, uh, and other ways to work with. I've worked with high school teachers for 20 years Mm -hmm. with groups of them every summer. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of them over the years. And so I think there are lots of ways that academic scholars can can reach across that chasm between academia and the lay audience for historical works and information. One of the other things you mentioned is the difference of interests that most of us, I would guess, listening and, and myself and you, according to your writing, we all got started uh, reading about the Civil War because it was such a spectacle, such a human drama, uh, the battles right. and campaigns drew us in. And as you go further in, then you start to learn about the the what lies beneath, the, the politics right. and the culture. The I'm wondering if if though if that divide is still as broad as it might have been, say, in the the seventies or eighties when a lot of academia didn't want to write about military things, and, and that certainly was out of fashion. Right. Uh, there's so much good well, military I, writing now. There is. There's a lot of good military scholarship. I still think there is a reluctance to do much with military history on the part of most academics. I, I, I think that it's still possible to take Civil War courses in lots of places where there's essentially no gunfire. I, I, can't, I mean, at, at UVA, <laughs> the person who taught the Civil War before I came was my long-time colleague, Michael Holt, who's one of the mm-hmm. preeminent 19th century political historians yes. of, of our time. And Mike mm-hmm. and I joked about this. When Mike taught the 15-week uh, Civil War and Reconstruction class, he had one lecture in the entire semester that dealt with military affairs, one lecture. Wow. And he and he and he wished he didn't even have to. He did that just because he felt that he had to do. That. <laughs> and, <laughs> it was a war, and I, suppose, I don't think. Yeah. That, I don't think. Yes, it was a war. But the point is that I mean, I think that the the people who are only interested in battles and generals are are heading down a road that leads to just as bad a place as people who would just as soon not have any battles and generals in the picture because the two worlds are inextricably linked. The military sphere and the non-military spheres intersect in so many ways, and nothing demonstrates that better than a, a serious look at the process of emancipation. You cannot look at that in any serious way, either how it unfolded in Washington or how it unfolded on the ground without dealing at length with military affairs. In addition to political affairs, social affairs, the actions of African Americans on the ground and so forth, all those are parts of this story, but the military is is absolutely at the center of it in many ways. 
and that that's another issue you address the the debate over whether you know, emancipation should be seen as a political driven by politics and Lincoln or driven by the enslaved refugees themselves and as you point out I think the Yankee army had something to do with it um, I, I think there's a reason why Juneteenth was Juneteenth 1865 in Texas. Yes, I do. The U.S. Army never got to Texas. And mm-hmm. so slavery in Texas was basically an untouched institution during the Civil War. It wasn't untouched in the lower Mississippi River Valley, where the U- Union military forces got early, or on the Virginia mm-hmm. Peninsula, or in parts of Tennessee. But anyway, I won't belabor this, but where the U.S. Army didn't go, slavery was pretty safe. Let me change gears with just a minute or two left. You have an essay on fluid landscapes where you talk about how uh, Civil War landscapes have changed since uh, in our own lifetimes. And coincident with this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you seem to have discovered Facebook recently. Um, I I was instructed to get on Facebook by LSU (laughs) Press because I have never been on social media of any kind. And I got on, and I found that I kind of had fun with posting pictures on Facebook of various well, exactly. related <laughs> and, and many pictures of you, uh, uh, some years younger, uh, often at Civil War sites. And this this essay points out the same thing that you can, you know, some of us are old enough to remember the the Stuckies at the Peach Orchard. Um, Absolutely. In, in, I, you asked me which essays I enjoyed the most. I enjoyed that one as much as anything because what triggered it was finding a, a cache of, of photos I took when I was 14 in 1965 on my very first trip to any of the battlefields. And I, it struck me at how one of them was of the Dunker Church mm-hmm. with a house trailer literally within 50 feet of one door of the Dunker Church. And, and it just reminded me of how landscapes have improved in many ways on many of these sites. But many others have been lost to development, but there are others that have been improved. Uh, you give the example of Salem Church, uh, you know, just west of Fredericksburg. Uh, yeah. And uh, right. when I lead bus tours by there, I have to tell people, everybody look really hard because we're going to get a one-second glimpse between all the yeah. urban sprawl right. to yeah. see this. But you saw it years ago when it was still bucolic. It was still outside uh, that, of town. <laughs> it was surrounded by fields. Yes, it, yes. So, so things have changed for the worse, but other times, as you point out here, for the better, where we don't have uh, a trailer parked next to the uh, next to the Dunker Church I anymore. I haven't thought of a Stuckey's in a long time till you mentioned it. <laughs> but also just the, the clearing that the National Park Service has done. I put yes. a picture of, of Saunders Field at, on the Wilderness Battlefield in this book which was solid mm-hmm. trees the first, when I went there in 1965. You couldn't have any idea of what was going on, and it's since been cleared, and now you can understand how the battle developed there. They, they've done so much good work at so many fields. Gary, we are out of time. Uh, we could talk another hour. I would love to. This book was just uh, completely entertaining and absorbing to turn the pages of one one short essay after another. Uh, if you didn't, you know, readers, if you read this and you don't like one, it's over in 30 seconds. You're okay. Uh, <laughs> go on to the next. You know, but, that wouldn't make a very good blurb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to read them all. I, but, I, I much appreciate your invitation. This was fun. 
Well, it really was fun. I enjoyed it. Listeners, you will enjoy The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis by Gary Gallagher, our guest tonight. Gary, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for coming back to Civil War Talk Radio. You're welcome. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.